Thank you so much. I, I appreciate your kind words, Wade, and uh, let me share that uh, that I have known Wade probably longer than he has known me uh, because he is one of the bright and most respected young pastors in the state of Mississippi. And uh, so I have uh, uh, found joy in observing the way the Lord has worked and is working in his ministry. And, and I know you know that, but I want you to know that other people know that as well. And uh, we, we appreciate what Wade is doing here at uh, Longview Point. And I want to commend you for keeping your goal of $250,000. That is remarkable and fantastic. And I certainly agree that only eternity will uh, uncover the impact that that money will have. I want to share with you something additional. I, I, Wade, I don't even know that you're aware of this, but uh, this has not, I don't think, been released uh, in the media yet. So you all here at this church are among the first to know. At the Mississippi Baptist Convention Board, we have like a lot of other ministries, had to cancel a lot of our uh, activities this year, our camps for the summer, most of our training events. Uh, we haven't allowed our people to travel. We have, in other words, recouped a lot of funds this year that would have ordinarily been used to support uh, these activities. So consequently, our bank account was, uh, was uh, getting a little more inflated than it would ordinarily this time of year. And I personally did not like that. And uh, so we looked at things and we made the decision that from the cooperative program dollars of Mississippi Baptist churches some of which come from your church, uh, that were unused in ministry this summer, we are going to give a $1 million gift to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering October the 1st of this year. And uh, so in addition... In other words, in addition to the 250000 that you're going to give, uh, some of that $1 million actually came directly from you. So your impact is being felt far beyond perhaps what you were even aware. And I wanted you to be aware of that. Uh, you'll probably be hearing more about that uh, in uh, the weeks and uh, months to come. But you're the first to know. So uh, I want to invite you now to open to the Gospel of Matthew, find chapter 16. I, I want to read verses 13 through 20 this morning and dissect it a bit. We're focused on making an impact globally. And if we're going to make an impact globally, we obviously need to begin where we are. And in these verses, this is what Jesus said in interaction with his disciples, beginning with verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began, he asked his disciples, rather, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. In Mississippi... According to the U.S. Bureau of Census, there are about 62% of the population who by their own admission are not engaged in church anywhere at any time. 62% of Mississippi. Now an additional 
5 to 7% say that they are engaged in church only on Christmas and Easter. They are the so-called creasters, you know, that's what we call them. They're there on Easter and Christmas, and I don't know if you would agree, I would hope you would, but I would say that they are unengaged in church, if that is the only time that they attend. So, literally, what those statistics indicate is that uh, anywhere from 65 to 70 percent of the population in Mississippi is unengaged in church. We have about three million people in the state of Mississippi. Two million this morning are unengaged in church. And, and I really don't have a problem believing that. I mean, anecdotally, I don't have a problem believing that at all. If, you, if, if you're ever late for church, you'll discover that the parking lot at Walmart is much fuller than the parking lot in most churches. Now, we have a responsibility to carry out the Great Commission, but carrying out the Great Commission begins right where we are, and right where we are is, in your case, Hernando, Mississippi, the state of Mississippi, and it is our responsibility to reach the people in Mississippi to fulfill the Great Commission. And this passage gives us insight into God's mechanism for reaching the nations with the gospel. Jesus I mean, laid it out clearly. God's strategy for reaching the world and fulfilling the Great Commission is the church. We are the mechanism for reaching out and making a difference in the world. We are God's mechanism, God's strategy. (laughs) Now, the verses we read a moment ago fall at a juncture in Jesus' ministry when, when he had been engaged in ministry already for some time. He had already traveled throughout Galilee. He had healed countless people. He had taught tirelessly. He had walked on water, fed the 5,000. He had instructed his disciples uh, related to prayer. He had taught the Sermon on the Mount. He had already uh, spent uh, probably in this brief time enough energy to uh, be a lifetime worth of ministry. And he recognized that his disciples were growing a bit weary. So Jesus, at this juncture in his his three-year ministry, decided to lead the disciples on a retreat. They traveled north to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It was located about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It it was in that day recognized as a bit of a resort area. It, It had a natural spring that fed into a beautiful pool that was surrounded by lush green vegetation and provided a a very serene setting for retreat and refreshment and renewal spiritually. And Jesus retreated with his with his disciples to this location. And and in the context of that retreat, he asked them a question uh, as they were perhaps sitting around a campfire. He said, uh, "Who do people say that I am?" And uh, they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. That, that would be an obvious answer because Jesus and John the Baptist actually overlapped in their ministries and, and uh, they were actually related physically and, and Jesus' message was very akin to John the Baptist's message and, and his code of conduct was very akin to that of John the Baptist. So that's an understandable answer. Others say, 
the disciples stated that you're Elijah. That, that would also be understandable because people confused John the Baptist and Elijah as well. They both lived out in the desert. They ate locusts and wild honey and wore a coat of camel's cloth. And, and, uh, and so they were very similar. So Elijah would be another understandable answer. Some say the disciples stated that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I don't think we would have trouble understanding why that statement might be made as well. But Jesus, in the course of this little test, looked at the disciples and he said, but this is my real question. Who do you say that I am? And, and let me just pause right here and say that that is the most important question you will ever answer in your life. Amen. And if you have never come to the point of answering that question, I pray today might be the day that you would feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life and say, as did Simon Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and experience the kiss of heaven on your soul and be changed for the rest of your life. I pray that might be the case. And in response to Simon Peter's statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus made the statement, uh, you are Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I want us to land right here on this statement for just a few moments and think just a bit about the church. The church is the strategy that the Father has chosen to reach the world. And if indeed that is the case, then it is incumbent upon us to have a clear, thorough, theological understanding of the church. If we do not, we are, we are working with one hand tied behind our back. So, so let me focus for just a few minutes on what Jesus taught us about the church. First of all, he identified the foundation of the church. If you'll go back and look again with me in verse 18, uh, he said in response to uh, Simon Peter's uh, statement of affirmation related to his uh, messianic mission and his deity, I tell you, Peter, I tell you rather you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now this seems like an innocuous and simple statement, but truthfully, it has been one of the most fiercely debated statements in the history of Christendom. There are a variety of interpretations. Let me do just a bit of exegetical work before we uh, take a gander at the interpretations. Uh, again, looking at the statement, Jesus said, you are Peter. Uh, the word Peter is the translation of a Greek word that is pronounced Petros. You hear the word Peter in it. And the word Petros means little rock, little pebble, little stone. You are Peter, you are Petros, and on this rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. The, the, the word rock is the translation of a Greek word that is pronounced Petra. Petros, Petra. The word Petra means big rock, big stone. A stone that might be used to chisel a smaller stone from in order to do a sculpting of some sort. And Jesus said, you are Petras, a little rock, and on this big rock I'm going to build my church. Now this has been fiercely debated through the years. There are some, our Roman brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church, who argue that what Jesus meant by this is that Simon Peter would be the foundation of the church. Now, just a little bit of a history lesson here. Uh, later in life, Simon Peter went to Rome and became the pastor of the church in Rome. You'll find references to Rome in First and Second Peter uh, as he was concluding those, uh, those letters. Uh, he became the pastor of Rome. And so consequently, the Roman Catholic Church argues that since Simon Peter is the foundation of the church and he pastored the church in Rome, that Rome is to be the hub of all Christendom and that the pastor of the church in Rome is the direct descendant of Simon Peter, 
Therefore is the father of all pastors. That's why they call him the Pope. So the entire papal system and the Roman Catholic understanding of the church is based on that interpretation of this statement made by Jesus. Now there are others who argue that Jesus meant by this statement that he was going to build the church on all of the apostles and the teaching of the gospel. Some argue that what Jesus meant is that he was going to build his church upon himself. Simon Peter might have been a little rock, but he was the big rock, and he was going to become the big rock upon which the church would be built. Now, I'm inclined to say that one of the latter two is the case. I certainly don't think that Jesus meant that he was going to build his church upon the work of any human being. I think that he meant that he was going to build his church upon himself, his work, his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what Paul believed. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said that no other foundation can be laid than that which has been laid for the church, and that is Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul made a similar kind of statement. He said that we are all built up into the body of Christ with him being the foundation. Peter even believed that Jesus was the foundation. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, uh, he talked about Jesus being the cornerstone of the church, the foundation of the church. It would have been an ideal time for Simon Peter to take a little bit of credit and say, hey, by the way, he told me that I was going to be the foundation of the church, but that's not what Peter did. Peter said he is the foundation of the church. So simply stated, we need to remember in our understanding of who we are as the church of Jesus Christ that Christ is the foundation. Now, the reason it is important for us to have a thoroughgoing understanding of this is because the enemy attempts to distract us from the centrality of Christ in his church. And there are a number of tools that the enemy uses to attempt to unseat Christ in his centrality. Sometimes the enemy will use a person a strong voice, an influential leader in the church, and perhaps they become so influential that they threaten to unseat Christ as the central component of the church. Sometimes the enemy will use a ministry of sorts, a program within the church. Maybe some ministry that has been wildly successful in attracting people into your fellowship as a body or wildly successful in meeting the needs of individuals as they arise. Sometimes the enemy will use the past. Now, I know that you as a church were formed in 2002, 2003. I was actually the pastor at First Baptist Columbus when you were birthed. And I remember being in meetings and hearing people regale about the great work that was going on at Longview Point as a plant of Longview Heights. And I know that your, your growth was mushroom in nature and, and that you just exploded. And God bless that. And when I say that sometimes the enemy will use the past, you might be tempted to say, well, we don't have very much of a past here. We've only been in existence for 20 years. But I would say that you don't have to have a long, illustrious past for the devil to use that uh, to attempt to unseat uh, the centrality of Christ. He can just as well use a short, successful history. And that might very well be something that he attempts to do here. It makes no difference what may have happened last year, five years ago, 10 years ago. Let's not allow anything that God did in the past to distract us from what God is doing in the moment. 
Now, all of that simply to remind us of this one seminal principle of the church, and that is that a person is not the foundation, uh, a ministry cannot be the foundation. The past, be it as celebratory as it can be, cannot be the foundation. Only Jesus Christ can be the foundation of the church. Do not, long point, forget that. Long viewpoint, forget that. Now, not only did Jesus teach... uh, a very important lesson about the foundation of the church, but he also reminded the disciples and through the inspiration of the word all of us gather today about the power of the church. Listen to what he went on to say in the last half of verse 18. He said that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, against the church. The antecedent of it is the church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Now, this gives the impression that the church is filled with power. Let me, let me just pause for a moment and share with you one of the great disappointments that, that I have had as a pastor. Uh, for 30 years, I pastored local churches until I moved into my current position earlier this year. One of the great disappointments that I've had as a pastor and, and that I have seen in the current position in which I, I find myself is this, that there are far too many churches who have this idea that the world is growing in power and growing in influence, and we, the church, are losing our influence, and we are losing our power, and therefore we huddle up in our holy shrines, and uh, we get together in order to cheer ourselves up and then we go out and we cower in fear as we go and may I suggest to you that that is an insult to God it's an insult to God the image that he used here depicts the church as an offensive machine sometimes we think that we're on the defense the world is attacking us we better get on the defense but in reality Jesus depicts hell itself as on defense. They're the ones with the gates and we the church are charging the gates. We are the ones with the power and authority and ability. And let me remind you of the source of our power as the church. Twofold. Number one, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 as he, as he was speaking to his disciples before he ascended uh, on the Mount of Olives uh, you, will be my, uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit came upon the church uh, very soon on the day of Pentecost. And Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 that whenever we put our faith in Jesus Christ and experience His forgiveness that the Holy Spirit seals our salvation. And in in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 he said that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let me share with you a stunning thought. I mean absolutely stunning. If you're here today and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and experienced the transformation of the gospel, you this very moment have within you the Holy Spirit of God. Don't underestimate that. And the Holy Spirit of God is with us in this place. How phenomenal. But not only do we have the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the power of His Word. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4 verse 12 said that the Word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword dividing between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, showing us the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 that heaven and earth may pass away, but my Word will never pass away. Psalm 119 celebrates the Word as being a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. We hide it in our hearts and it 
protects us from the work of the enemy. James said in chapter 1 that the implanted word in the life of a believer has the ability to produce salvation. The word of God is one of the sources of power. And I'm afraid that we underestimate that. This is why when we gather, we preach and teach the word. We read the Bible. We memorize the Bible. We make it a, 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 an, an inherent part of our lives because it is the avenue that God uses to express his power. Let me share a testimony with you about the power of the word. I pastored in New Orleans before I moved to Columbus in 2003. And uh, as I said in the first service, I'll say again, I think every pastor ought to be sentenced to New Orleans for about six months. It was a growing experience. I was there for 12 years, and uh, I pastored Metairie Baptist Church, and we had one of our ladies who owned a Kentwood water bottling distribution uh, center there, and she came to me one day. She was quite a wealthy lady and, and very faithful part of the church family, and she came to me, and she said, I, I, I have never felt like I've, I've wisely used what God has given me, and, and I would like to give 10,000 bottles of water to the church if you all can figure out how to use it for ministry. And so I took that as a challenge, and we huddled up as a, as a team, and we began to think about how we might do that, and this is what we came up with. We came up with a ministry that we called Project Living Water. We took those bottles of water, and uh, we ordered a, a little tract that included the Gospel of John. That's all it was, no explanation, no no four spiritual laws, no steps to peace with God, just the gospel of John. And on the back of that little booklet, we stamped, this is, this is primitive, we stamped with a hand stamp, the name of our church, our address, my email address. We, we, we cut a hole in the top corner of that little gospel and we took a ribbon and tied it around the mouth of all of those bottles of water, went down to the French Quarter, Jackson Square nonetheless, set up between a tarot card reader and a palm reader, and began to hand out bottles of water. It was a hot New Orleans day, so everybody wanted a bottle of water. We understood that we were, in addition to giving them a bottle of water, giving them also the living water of the Gospel of John. And we gave all of those 10,000 bottles out, and then uh, we came back on a second occasion. She gave us another 10,000 bottles. We did that all in a matter of about a month in uh, hot July summer. After the second time of doing that, I was walking back to my car. It was about noontime on a Saturday, and I was walking down Bourbon Street. By the way, if you want to walk down Bourbon Street, noontime on Saturday is a good time to do it. <laughs> As I was walking along, I looked down and noticed littered all along the sides of the street those little red booklets that we had tied to the mouth of the bottles. And I thought to myself, did we do anything? Was, was that worth the effort and the time and the money that was invested about two weeks after the last time that we did that, I got an email. And this was before the days of being concerned about strange anonymous emails. I didn't know who this person was, but I opened it up and this is what it said. It said, you don't know me and I don't know you, but my name is so-and-so and I live in New York City. My family and I were in New Orleans a couple of weeks ago and we were walking in the French Quarter and and we were handed a bottle of water, and there was a little red booklet on that bottle of water. I pulled it off, put it in my shirt pocket, enjoyed the bottle of water, by the way, and didn't think about that booklet again until we arrived home in New York, and I was unpacking, found that shirt, discovered that little red booklet still in my pocket. 
He said, I opened it up and began to read it. I had never read this story before. I had no idea what it was. And he said, I was so intrigued by it that I couldn't put it down. He said, I read through it twice. He said, I, I, I knew that I needed to ask somebody what this is about. Can you imagine somebody in the United States of America not even knowing about Jesus Christ and the Gospel of John? He said, I had a workmate who was, who was well-read. I talked to him about this book, the Gospel of John, uh, which features a man named Jesus. And he said, oh, yeah, that's, that's a Christian book. You need to find a pastor. He will, he'll explain it to you. And he said, there's a little church not far from where I live. And I called and made an appointment with that pastor and sat down with him. And he explained to me the full story of Jesus Christ, the Gospel, my need for forgiveness and Christ's provision for forgiveness through his death, burial, and resurrection. And he said, I just wanted to email you today and let you know that as a result of you sharing that book of the Gospel of John, that I have put my faith in Jesus Christ and am now a disciple of the Lord. Now listen, listen, listen. I didn't share the four spiritual laws with him. I didn't share steps to peace with Christ. I didn't go through the Roman road. I mean, I would have if I could have. I would have. But I didn't. There wasn't the opportunity. And what I discovered is... God doesn't need us to do that because His Word is sufficient to take care of business on its own. Now, if you can, do it. But if you can't, remember this Word implanted in the life of a human being has the ability to change it. Now, this is, this is the power that is ours. Now, just real quickly, I want to hustle on to the next verse and speed toward the finish line here. Verse 19. This is our purpose as the church. Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This too is a little bit of a confusing statement and has been fiercely debated. I mean, this is the basis of the practice in some of our traditions as Christians of confession, where you go and confess your sin, and then a priest or uh, or a rector or whomever may, may pronounce forgiveness over you. They, they base that on this, on this verse. It almost sounds as if Jesus is saying that we are the catalyst. Whatever we do, then heaven is going to reflect it. You know, we sort of originate the process, and then heaven honors what we originate. And, and it sort of puts the authority in the hands of humanity. And, and I, I think that's a misunderstanding of the statement. Let, let me share with you a, a more literal translation. Now, the New Testament was written in Greek. You know that, okay? And if you look at the original Greek, this is maybe a better way to translate verse 19. Jesus said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. In other words, earth is not the catalyst. Heaven is the catalyst. Earth simply reflects what's already going on in heaven. Okay? Now, bringing that down to where the rubber meets the road, what that means is this, that we are called to share the message of the gospel. Wherever we go. This is the authority we have. <laughs> you may say, well, I'm not very good at it. Well, do the best you can. Just testify to what God has done in your life. I've had people tell me, I, I have shared with people and they rebuffed me. They didn't respond. So I, I don't feel comfortable. Listen, what I would encourage all of us to do is this. Share the message of the truth and leave the results up to God. Okay, let me close with a story. 
My grandfather, Norvin Parker, from Mickey, Tennessee, was a bona fide scoundrel. He really was. He was a sawmiller, rough around the edges, drank too much, womanized, philandered on a regular basis. Why my grandmother married him, I will never understand, but she did. She was one of the most saintly women I've ever known. On a given occasion, my grandfather, Norvin Parker, was in a little general store there in the Mickey area that was owned by a guy named Douglas Carpenter who was a deacon at Mickey Baptist Church. And Douglas Carpenter was a great man, faithful servant of the Lord, faithful witness. And uh, Brother Carpenter, as we called him, was, was very faithful and diligent about sharing the message of the gospel with anybody who came into the store that, you know, might, might need to, to hear it. And so on a given day, my grandfather was in the store. He came to the register to pay, and Brother Carpenter recognized there's nobody else here besides the two of us. So he took advantage of the, of the moment, and he shared the gospel with my grandfather. And right there on the spot in that little general store in the middle of nowhere, my grandfather, Norvin Parker, called on the name of the Lord to be saved, and he was radically changed. He, he became a deacon in the church, began to teach Sunday school. In fact, if you go back to Mickey now, nobody will say that he was a scoundrel. They'll all say he was a great man because God changed him so radically. My grandfather introduced my dad to faith in Jesus Christ. My dad introduced me to faith in Jesus Christ. I was called to preach when I was 16 years old. I've been preaching now for a long time. About 10 years ago, I was invited to preach at First Baptist Church, Boonville, Mississippi. I was thrilled about this because I was born in Boonville, Mississippi. That, that was my birthplace. And so I went on Sunday morning and uh, I shared with them that I, I was born at the hospital across the street. I was so thrilled and ecstatic to be there. And, uh, and, and the Holy Spirit moved in the service. And we actually had two people come forward and call on the name of the Lord to be their Savior. And... After the service was concluded, I had two conversations that I'll never forget as long as I live. One of those conversations was with an older gentleman who had sung in the choir. And he came up to me and he said, now you mean to tell me that you were born at the hospital across the street? I said, yes, sir. He said, what year were you born? I told him. He said, I thought you looked familiar. <laughs> I said, what, what do you mean by that? He said, well, at that particular time, I was the only delivering doctor in that hospital. I brought you into the world, and I felt a little bit exposed in the moment, knowing that I had just preached the truth of God's Word to the man that brought me into the world. But nonetheless, it was a thrilling conversation. The second conversation that I'll never forget was with one of the two who came forward to call on the name of the Lord. His name was David. And uh, David shared with me how God had worked in his life. And I said, David, where are you from? And he said, well, I'm from, my, he said, my family moved around all over the place. We lived in Detroit and Memphis and here and there. But he said, we call Mickey, Tennessee home. I'm like, now hang on, David. There are 350 people in Mickey and I know all 450 of them. There is nobody in Mickey that I don't know and I don't know you. I said, well, what is your last name? And he said, Carpenter. I said, you related to Douglas Carpenter? He said, that's my grandfather. And all of a sudden, I was stunned by what God 
had just done in his providence. Douglas Carpenter led my grandfather to faith in Jesus Christ, who led my father to faith in Jesus Christ, who led me to faith in Jesus Christ. God called me to preach so that many years he could use me to lead Douglas Carpenter's grandson to faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to say one more time, okay? You share the message and leave the results up to God. He can take care of business. So, two million people in Mississippi unengaged in church. What are we going to do about it, Longview Point? What are we going to do about it? I am committed as the director of the Mississippi Baptist Convention to utilize every ounce of leverage that we can under the power of the Holy Spirit to reach Mississippi with the gospel. We may be the most church state according to the statistics, but we need Christ in our midst as Mississippians, and I am committed to doing that, and I hope and pray that you are as well. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to share your word with these people. I'm thankful for the, the resonant spirit that I, I have sensed from them uh, about the truth of Jesus' teaching. And I pray, God, that you would bless them and bless Brother Wade and all of the ministry team here as they provide leadership that they might indeed uh, make an impact locally, across the state, across the nation, and around the world. And I want to pray especially for all the missionaries who are here, the, uh, the couple who uh, spoke earlier. I lift them up to you and pray for your blessings upon them and the many others. God, I pray that you would encourage them and that you would provide for them the resources they need and that you would bless them. And as we all work together, Father, help us to share the gospel so that you might be lifted up and glorified above all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.